Welcome to North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week and inspires you to know Christ intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Christ daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its timeless truth for living life God's way. Let's listen to Pastor Brandon as he brings us today's message. When um, William Carey had succeeded in establishing his pioneer missionary work in India, his supporters in England um, sent him an assistant by the name of Mr. Ward, who is a printer by trade, actually. Soon they were turning out printed portions of the Bible for distribution among the natives. Carey spent many years learning the language and wrote grammars and dictionaries for those of of his successors who were to come after him. But one day in the early days of his ministry with Mr. Ward by his side, he was a, uh, Mr. Carey was away from his station and this disastrous fire broke out and completely destroyed the building that they had inhabited at the time that their printing machines and all their materials had been in. Everything was gone in an instant. Everything that Carrie had spent so much time on, volumes upon volumes of material, all the printing presses, the work that he'd put into translating the word of God into the native tongue in India. When Mr. Carey returned, his servants told him of the loss that they had incurred while he was gone. And without a word of despair or anger, he knelt down and he thanked God that he had the strength to do, to do the work all over again. How many of you would have that kind of response at such tremendous loss? That you would kneel down and thank God that after you had lost everything that you had worked so hard for, that you would thank God for having the strength to be able to do the work all over again. Without a word of despair, he knelt down, he prayed this prayer. He started immediately, not wasting a moment in idle despair. And before his death, he duplicated his first achievements and produced a far better work than he had done formerly. Thousands in this world have lost all, including um, the very house uh, and roofs over their heads. And many who know the Lord have gone on in faith seeking to serve him. And no matter what the circumstance, they're willing to continue. How many of you have ever been to this place in your life where you're ready to throw in the towel? I've been there a time or two. Yeah, being a pastor in the ministry <clears throat> is not a one-day-a-week job. I know that's the joke, but the truth is it's a 24-7 job. Because when I leave work, work never leaves me. Does that make sense? It's always on my mind. Each and every one of you are always on my mind. When I'm setting down and trying to focus on other things, sometimes the Lord will bring one of your all's faces or names to mine. And I could resent that, but I don't. I thank God that I have you in my life. 
and I pray for you. But there are times in ministry that I just want to throw in the towel. As much as I know there are times in your life, in your jobs, in your marriages, in your relationships, wherever you are, whatever you do, and you're like, it would be so much better, or you believe the lie that it would be so much better if you just gave up and threw it all away and started over. Have you ever wanted to walk away and not look back? I have. I've wanted to do that here. If I'm being completely transparent and honest, there have been days where I'm like, God, open a door somewhere and just let me walk through it and I'll never look back. Like, Like Lot's wife did. I won't look back. I'll keep focus straight ahead. Have you ever been that frustrated, that upset, or that angry that you're willing to not look back? Do you look at experience in your life as wasted and frustrating or as opportunities to stretch and grow? Do you look at opportunities in life as opportunities to stretch and grow or to give up? Now consider this, do you believe that you were created for a purpose? Because I guarantee there are some of you out there that say, no, I don't know what my purpose is. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do, where I'm supposed to go, who I'm supposed to be with. What? I don't know anything, Brandon. I'm seeking, I'm searching. You see, and here's the deal. We were all created with a purpose. The psalmist says we were knit together in our mother's womb that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And the psalmist says, I know that full well. He knows that about himself. I know that I'm fearfully and I'm wonderfully made. I know that I have a purpose. I know that you don't create without purpose in mind. Genesis 1 and 2, God created everything after each and every day. On the seventh day, he rested, but at the end of each day, he said, it's good. And then when he got done at the end of the sixth day, he looked at everything and he said, it's very good. And God doesn't create good things without a purpose. God doesn't create people without a purpose. And God's purpose for God's people is to be a part of his purpose rather than their own. And see, some of the biggest failures in life, some of the biggest difficulties that we all face come from our trying to accomplish what we want to do rather than what he wants to do through us. You wonder why things are going bad. It's not because God's given up on you. Maybe he's right there through that valley of the shadow of death right there with you, and some of you are in that deep, dark valley, and you say, I'm done. I want out of this valley as quick as possible. I don't want to go through it anymore. I'm done. Somebody throw me a rope over the edge of the cliff so I can get out of this valley. And let me tell you, there are a ton of ropes hanging over the edge of that cliff, but God wants to walk through the valley with you to bring you on the other side of it, to show you the clear picture of what his purpose is for you. See, this is Esther's story. And as we come into this new series this month, and as we begin to look at this cross-section or this, this slice, if you will, of Esther's life, I want you to see a woman who at times wanted to give up, who at times knew that risking everything could cost her her life, but she knew that maybe she had been created for such a time as this. 
See, we pick up this 10-chapter story in the Old Testament, and here's the setting for this. It's in the uh, kingdom of the the Medo-Persians, and the the capital of the kingdom is in a place called Susa, S-U-S-A. And that would consider to be modern-day Iran. If you looked on a map, that's where Susa would be, somewhere in that region. What's going on with the Israelites? Well, the Israelites are no longer a nation. The northern kingdom, way back in the 700s BC, had been conquered by the Assyrian. The southern kingdom, Judah, ultimately became conquered by the Babylonians in the 500s BC. And now we're somewhere between 500 and 400 BC when we come up on the scene here and no longer are the Babylonians in charge. The Medo-Persians have taken over and now you have the Persian king Xerxes. And Xerxes is ruler of the land at this point. He's three years into his kingship whenever he deposes his wife, Vashti, who is the queen. Now, he has a numerous other harems and concubines for women at his disposal, but there is one woman who would carry on the royal bloodline, and through her, the, 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 the bearing of children would come the next king. In a drunken stupor at a banquet hall, King Xerxes demands that Vashti be brought before him and all the men who are in the room with her crown on because she is one of the most beautiful women in all the land. And so when the eunuchs, the servants of Xerxes go to get Vashti, guess what her response is? Nope, I'm not going. For whatever reason, we don't know why she refused to go. She was also throwing a banquet with the women. Maybe it's because she didn't want to be a poor host. Maybe it's because she knew that the guys were all schnookered because they've been drinking way too much, and to have a beautiful woman come into a room full of drunk men is probably not a thing to do. Whatever the case is, she refused to go before the king. And this was a no-no. Because even though they were husband and wife, and though she was a king, and she had some sense of authority, he had authority over her. Got royally ticked off, figuratively and literally speaking, and he had her banished from his presence. He didn't have her executed, he could have, but he had her banished from his presence, had her title as queen stripped from her, and now he was a king without a queen. So a great search happened in all the land. And women were brought in, and they were given beauty treatments and dietary supplements and everything for a period of about a year in order for the king to be able to select one woman from among all of these women to be his next king. There was a woman by the name of Esther, a Jewish female, but nobody knew she was Jewish. They kept that a secret. She had been adopted by her father, which was her cousin before she was adopted by him, Mordecai. Mordecai ended up working in the king's court in some official capacity. Eventually, he would rise through the ranks, but we'll get there later. But Esther became one of these women who for 12 months was given beauty treatments and all of that, so she would be, she would be completely presentable to the king when it was time for him to select a queen. And here's how he would do it. He would select one woman from among this harem of ladies that had been selected, and he would spend time with her. He would check her out, 
kick the tires, so to speak. I hate to say that, ladies, but that's how this worked. And then he would try on another lady for size, and so on and so forth. Esther rose to the top. Esther became his queen. Still, Xerxes doesn't know she's Jewish. Not that that would matter or not matter. We're not sure at this point. But here's what happens. We come up on the story today. Mordecai, who is a faithful Jew, and the Jewish people are very proud people. The Jewish people will not bow before any other God but their God. So now there's a king's advisor by the name of Haman. He'd risen through the ranks. He's now almost like second in command over all the Medo-Persian kingdom. And Haman, believe it or not, is, is from a tribe of Amalekites. If you go way back in the, in the Old Testament, you'll find out that under King Saul, King Saul and even David at times fought against the Amalekites. Okay? The Amalekites and the Jewish people were not friends. They were bitter enemies. And now you have Haman, who is a descendant of the Amalekites, and Mordecai, who is a descendant of King Saul. Did you know that? How funny is this? And the two of them, not knowing their own histories, allow this story to play out on the front lines of their lives. So Haman, having been elevated to this power position of second in command, decides he's, uh, or he, he is now paraded through the streets with a whole group of soldiers and everything else, fanfare, it's like a parade. And, and it's customary when somebody of royalty comes down the lane, what are you to do? You don't do arm farts. You don't pick your nose. What do you do? You bow like this with your head to the ground in full submission to the king or the king's advisors. Guess who doesn't bow when Haman comes through town? Mordecai. Who is Mordecai? He's the adopted father of Esther. Who is Esther at this point? She's queen. The story is set. Haman gets royally ticked off, yet again, no pun intended. Goes before King Xerxes and says, there's a punk out there on the streets. These Jewish people, this is who he is. He's a part of this Jewish clan. And here's what they're going to do. They're going to cause problems for the kingdom of Xerxes. So the best thing to do with the Jewish people is to have them killed off. Exterminate the whole race of Jewish people, every one of them throughout the kingdom. And the king says, okay, yeah, we don't want an uprising. Let's go ahead and do that. And so he signs an edict, which becomes royal law. And in the Medo-Persian kingdom, you cannot revoke royal law. So even the king himself, when he writes a law into existence, can't revoke his own laws. Why? Because the king is considered godlike, And gods don't make mistakes. And so when you write a law into existence as a godlike person, it sticks. So Haman then goes back to his group after he's gotten the decree from Xerxes, and then they cast lots. It's like rolling dice or drawing straws, whatever the case is. It's something like that, where they cast lots to find out when they're going to enact this great atrocity to exterminate the Jews. Well, it's nearly a year later. 
It's nearly a year later. And so we've got a whole year on the scene before the Jews are exterminated. And this is how the story unfolds. If we turn to Esther chapter 4, let's look briefly at this whole chapter. When Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on burlap and ashes, and went out into the city crying with a loud and bitter wail. What did he learn about? He learned that the king had given an edict to exterminate all the Jews in the land. And he does this thing that is typical of Jewish people. He goes into mourning. And when you go into mourning, <coughs> excuse me, you tear your robes. Usually the robe would have been hanging down front. You tear it at the neck and rip it all the way down the front to show how frustrated and how saddened you are. And then you put on burlap. Some say animal skins with the hair turned inward. It's to, it's to be very uncomfortable for you. Okay? And you wail and you mourn. Now, wailing and mourning bitterly isn't just a small little tear trickling down in silence. It is an oh, woe is me. And you grab ash and you put it on your head and you, you just look so unkempt. Why? Because you want people to know that something devastating has happened in your life. And so this is what he does. He went as far as the gate of the palace, for no one was allowed to enter the palace gate while wearing clothes of mourning. So he had been able to sit at the gate of the palace, helping in matters of government at the local city gate for the king. But prior to, prior to that, but now he's wearing burlap and ashes. And he comes as far as the gate, but he cannot enter the palace arena. And as news of the king's decree reached all of the provinces, which are like states in a country, there was great mourning among the Jews. They fasted, they wept, they wailed, and many people lay in burlap in ashes. What would you do if you found out that a country who was one of the biggest rulers in the world was going to wipe out a group of people? How would you feel? kind of harkens back to Nazi Germany in World War II, doesn't it? The extermination of the Jews. It's relevant today as it was back then. When Queen Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was deeply distressed. She sent clothing to him to replace the burlap, but he refused it. Then Hester, Hester that's uh, one of my family member's last name. Sorry about that. Then Esther sent for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed as her attendant. She ordered him to go to Mordecai and find out what was troubling him and why he was mourning. She hadn't got wind of the edict from the king. She had no clue. And this is not untypical because women weren't allowed to help make decisions of public interest. Their sole purpose in society, ladies, please understand, it's not me saying this, this was the culture. Their sole purpose in society was for bearing children and providing sex. That was the sole purpose for women in the Medo-Persian kingdom. That's, they didn't live in the king's quarters. They lived in a section of the palace off-site of, of the king himself, and she could only come before the king. The queen could only come before the king at his beck and call and no other time. Because if she were to come at any other time, she could be executed or banished from his presence forever, like Vashti was. So Hathach went to Mordecai in the square in front of the palace gate. 
Mordecai told him the whole story, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. So he had told Xerxes, listen, this will be lucrative for you. If you let me have, uh, have the heads of all the Jewish people, just exterminate them throughout the land, I'll make it to your benefit. Not only will they not be able to rise up against you, but I'll take all the booty from their homes. I'll take all the, all the stuff, all the valuables, and I'll give you X number of dollars, so to speak. Oh, that sounds like a good deal to me. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to keep a group from rising up against me that's within the kingdom, and you're going to give me money for it, all right, it, it works out. So as all of this is transforming, is unfolding, Mordecai gave Hathach a copy of the decree issued in Susa that called for the death of all the Jews. He asked Hathach to show it to Esther and explain the situation to her. He also asked Hathach to direct her to go to the king and beg for mercy and plead for her people. So Hathach returned to Esther with Mordecai's message. Okay, so now, now he's going back and forth. They didn't have phones at that time. Text messaging wasn't existent. Internet wasn't even created at that point in the BC era. Okay, so how do they pass? messages back and forth through couriers. Hathach was that courier. Then Esther told Hathach um, to go back and relay this message to Mordecai after he came back with Mordecai's message. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in the inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his golden scepter. And the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. She hasn't seen the king for 30 days, and she's the queen. Mordecai's asking her to go before him to advocate on behalf of the Jewish people who have been given an execution notice that has been issued by Xerxes himself. Imagine the situation Esther finds herself in when her dad, her adopted father, is saying, you need to go before the king and have him stop this. But she hasn't even been called to the king for 30 days. So Hathach gave Esther's message to Mordecai. And then Mordecai then sent another message back. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace that you'll escape when the other Jews are killed. Why? Because the king's royal decree is the king's royal decree for all Jews everywhere. It cannot be revoked. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. But you and your relatives will die. What is he saying? See, Mordecai knows that God is God and Xerxes is not. And that God always supplies or, 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 or protects a remnant of his people. All the Jews aren't going to get wiped out. Mordecai knows this full well, but he knows that their lives are in jeopardy. He knows that God will protect a remnant, but they may not be a part of it. And then he goes on to say, who knows if perhaps you are made queen for such a time as this. Then Esther sent, his message, sent this message to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. And my maids and I will do the same. And then, though 
it is against the law, I will go and see the king. If I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Here's the key point this morning. Love never gives up even when it means honoring God more than honoring the king. Love never gives up even when it means honoring God more than anything else in this world. Like Esther, I believe that we can learn how to face difficult circumstances without buckling or caving into fear. I believe like Esther, we can learn to never give up when situations seem impossible to overcome. Have you ever faced a situation that you thought there was no way out of? That the, that, that the consequences were going to be so grave, you just knew there was no way out of it. The only way out of it was to go through it. Have you ever been in this situation like Esther was? See, here's what we learned from Esther today. A call to action may at times involve great risk. A call to action may at times involve great risk. Esther knew the risk of coming before the king unannounced. She knew that if she were to step into his section of the palace without being invited would mean sheer death. They'd seen it happen before. She knew the consequences of that. Unless the king held out his gold scepter, his attendants around him, his bodyguard, if you will, would not attack and kill the person even if it was the queen, because nobody was, nobody was to be trusted. Everybody wanted the seat of authority. If you killed the king, then you became the next king. So he had to have a bodyguard around him. She knew that coming before him could mean the end of it all for her. Great rewards, though, involve great risk, but we don't risk for risk's sake. It's not like I'm just going to willy-nilly go out and risk everything for nothing. Do you know what I'm saying? But I see a lot of people do that. They go out and they risk everything for nothing. I see people risk their marriages. I see people risk their lives on drugs and alcohol and other things like that. Some people take foolish risks that end up biting you in the end, but we don't risk for risk's sake, those of us who are in Christ and who Christ is in. We who believe in Jesus Christ risk for his sake, And when we risk everything for his sake, we gain everything, even if it means we lose our lives. Does this make sense? This is the way of the Savior. This is what Jesus did. Great rewards involve great risk, but we don't risk for risk's sake. We take calculated risk. And though fear rears its ugly head, we don't know that if if fear rears its ugly head, what are we to do? Well, what are we going to do? You have a choice. You can hightail it and run the other way, or you can face fear head on. But here's the interesting thing we know about fear. Fear for the believer in Christ has no power or authority. The only power and authority that fear has over your life is the power and authority you give it. And I see so many people giving power and authority to the enemy each and every day, and then they blame the devil. The devil made me do it. Or they blame God for not protecting them and keeping them out of trouble. You have a choice. You have a head on your shoulders. You have a mind, a body, a heart, and a spirit. God has created you fearfully and wonderfully. Remember, I said that earlier, quoting the psalmist. 
He's given you everything you need at your repertoire to, to be able to overcome difficulty, circumstances, and fear. And here's the thing, God holds out his, uh, his love for you. Because here's what we know about God. If we trust in God, if we surrender to God, if everything we have is given to God, our fears and everything else, we know that God is good, that he's perfect. And what does John tell us about God? John in 1 John tells us that God is love. And what does he say about love? Perfect love casts out fear. Those of you that struggle against fear, where is God in your life? Because God is love. And if love is in you, if God is in you through the power of his Holy Spirit, then what do you have to fear? Because God, as love, as perfect love, casts out fear. So my question to you is if fear has crept into your life again, where's God in your life? Have you taken him out of the seat in your life that should only be reserved for him and you've allowed other desires and purposes and things in your life to fill that seat? Because if you have, that's why fear has crept back in. But if God has his perfect place in your life, God as love is perfect love and perfect love casts out fear. Second thing we know about Esther is that God will always accomplish his, well, God will always accomplish his purposes with or without us. Let me say that again. God will always accomplish his purposes with or without us. But here's the caveat. He always wants to accomplish them with us. Okay? Again, this is the choice factor. This is what Mordecai told Esther. Sure, don't go before the king, but don't think you're going to escape death just because you're the queen. You and your family will die too. So it's either risk dying now or die later. If the result is you're going to die more than likely, then why don't you step up to the plate and do the right thing? Right? See, God has purposes and plans. God has orchestrated eternity for us. But one of the things a perfect loving God that we just talked about does, he doesn't force our hand to love him in return. You go all the way back to first uh, and second chapter of Genesis. God creates an opportunity for choice. Well, why, why did God plant the tree of the knowledge of good and evil anyway? That's kind of a sadistic God to put temptation right in front of us. No, it's a loving God who says, if I don't give them a choice, then are they really free? Are you? If you have no choice to choose or reject, are you really free? You're not. So God places this tree. And it's not like he places the tree there and says, you've got an option your options are limitless. Choose whatever you want. No, he says, this tree, you can eat of any tree in the garden except this one. So he's, he's telling them like any good parent, you can run anywhere you want to in the yard, just don't run into the street. Because if you run into the street, you could get hit by a car. 
You can run anywhere. You can play anywhere in the safety of these boundaries. Do not run out of those boundaries because I can't protect you there. If you choose that, that could be death for you. And we know what happens. And so they took a calculated risk, Adam and Eve. They thought, the benefit of being like God seems pretty great to me. I'm going to take the risk and reject what God told me and eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then the blame game begins. And we've been doing the blame game ever since. It's his fault. It's her fault. Nobody accepts responsibility or ownership for the problems in their own lives. It's the way I was raised. It's my dad's fault. It's, it's, it's my mom's fault. No, 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 no. You are where you are. Yes, maybe circumstantially because situations have played out such in your life that you are where you are, but you have to take ownership for where you are and be willing to say, I want to get out of here and do the right thing, which may require me to take some risks to get back realigned with God's purposes because I've strayed so far from where I should be. Like Esther, many of us look at the decisions in front of us and we struggle to take the risk. Fear of losing everything causes us to miss opportunities to play a big part in God's plans for our lives. Again, the decision to take a risk shouldn't be uncalculated. But when all is said and done, refusing to step up to an opportunity that could change everything for the better is a foolish mistake on our part. Mordecai knew that God would ultimately accomplish his plan with or without Esther, but he also knew that perhaps she was made for such a time as this. There's another story in the New Testament where Jesus is confronted by this guy who comes before him and he bows down in front of Jesus and calls him, hey, good teacher, everybody knows that you have the words to eternal life. What must I do to receive eternal life? And Jesus says, okay, You must not murder, commit adultery, you shouldn't steal, testify falsely, don't cheat anyone, honor your father and your mother. See, he wasn't given an an exhausted list because he knew the heart of the gentleman that was standing before him. And the guy says, teacher, I've done everything. Like I've, I've been good in all those areas. I'm good. So that's it. That's all I need to do. And Jesus says, no, 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 here's one other thing. Go and sell off everything you have and give it to the poor. Then come follow me. We call this the story of the rich young ruler. What does he do? Does he go home, sell off everything, and then come follow Jesus? Does he give everything he has to the poor? Does he give up everything? See, he calculated the cost in his own mind, and he said, that cost is too great for following you. And some of us calculate the cost for following Jesus, and we're willing to only be in so far. I'll I'll risk this much, but I'm not going to risk any more than that. If it means losing my wealth, if it means losing my reputation, if it means losing my status in society, no, I'm not going to go that far. But see, Jesus doesn't want part of us. He wants all of us. God doesn't doesn't take second seat. And it's not because he's arrogant, pompous, or rude. It's because he is God. 
I mean, we, we like to put him in human terms, but honestly, God is God. And God is good and loving and gracious, but he's also a God of judgment and wrath. And he will not take second best or second seat to us. Those stickers on your cars that may say, God is my co-pilot, take them off. He's not only there in case of an emergency to grab the wheel. Jesus, take the wheel. You know, no, come on. It is you take the wheel all the time. I will go where you lead. You drive the car. You take the pilot's seat. I'm letting go of control. But we don't like to let go of control. Listen, I'm a control freak. I like things my way. Ask my kids, they'll tell you. I do, ask my wife, she'll tell you. I like the towels folded a certain way. I like the toilet paper put on a certain way. I like the tube of toothpaste squeezed a certain way. But you learn to make concessions in marriage and in life. Yes, I'm one of those. But let's be honest. What are you willing to give up in order to have everything in return? The rich young ruler walked away from Jesus. It says distressed, downhearted. Jesus looked around at his disciples at that point and he said, how hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? This amazed them, (laughs) but he said this, dear children, it's so hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were yet astounded by what he said. And they said, who in the world? They said, who in the world can be saved then? If, If that's the standard for eternal life, then who can get in? It's not possible. And Jesus says these poignant words. With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. See, he was trying to get the disciples to not look at things through human eyes, but through God's eyes. And too often, when our back's against the wall, when we're ready to throw in the towel, what eyes are you looking at your problem through? Probably human eyes. When you come to the burnt down house that had everything in it, your life's work and accomplishments, do you bow and thank God that you have another opportunity and the strength to fulfill what God has placed in you? Or do you crumble under the weight of despair and throw in the towel and just give up altogether? The last thing is resolving to do the right thing is difficult and often comes at a price. We live in a day and age where we don't like difficulty. We like easy push button technology. We have everything at our fingertips. We can go anywhere and get anything we want Even if we don't have the money, we can go get a loan. Most of us can, 0%, no money down, da, 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 da. 
You can get a credit card, you can do this. And we buy in hook, line, and sinker. I can have everything whenever I want it. And we do. We do. And are we better off for it? I don't think we are. I see more people that are, are distressed and under burdens and challenges and difficulties now than at any point in time in my life. And on the trips that I've gone to Uganda and Africa and Guatemala and different places, I see people living with so much less that have so much, but are happier. Well, we bought into the lie that in order to be happy, we have to have every, everything our heart desires. We give ourselves over to it don't we? We don't throw caution to the wind. We do throw caution to the wind and we go do whatever we want. We get whatever we want. And then we end up getting the results and consequences of everything we've desired. You know, that terminology, everything that glitters is not gold is really applicable in these situations. But to do the right thing is often difficult and will come at a price. And we don't want to do the difficult things. We call the, the, the society, the, the term snowflake is thrown around so much now. Because we melt under the, under the slightest little offense. That offends me. God forbid, go back 100 years ago when life was tougher. Go back to the Roman era. Go back at any other time in history. You wouldn't just melt under the pressure. You would be crushed under the pressure. Actually, let's look at today. Go to China. Go to Bangladesh. Go to Sri Lanka. You know, they've been blowing up churches there. But we wilt under the smallest amount of pressure. And it happens in the church more often than not. God forbid it. We're driven by money, success, and toys when we should have Christ at the center. And then we won't faint, we won't grow weary. Yeah, these things impassion me. And you think, that guy yells a lot. But the truth is, because you might get offended at my loud voice. I'm tired, ladies and gentlemen. I'm tired of the structures that men and women make to live under when God has given us a perfect structure of leadership, of love, of goodness. And yes, it is hard. Walking the way of Christ is never easy. And it never will be this side of heaven. Jesus never promised that. You will struggle with your finances from time to time. You will continue to struggle with your relationships. And the enemy, who is a great deceiver and liar, wants you to risk it all for him and throw everything away that is good in your life. You see, because that's his nature, to steal, kill, and destroy. 
But Jesus, who didn't see it something to attain the equality with God, but took on himself the position of servant, even though he was God in the flesh. See, he conquered sin and death. Not by calling down angels from heaven, not by zapping things with his fingers, not through laser vision, through the superheroes of our day and age. Jesus conquered sin and death by the most difficult means possible, the only means possible. As the nails were pierced through his hands and his feet, a mocking crown of thorns placed on his head. And as he hung hung there for six hours, God turned his face and Jesus experienced the great separation from his Father in heaven. That is hell. When the creeds tell us he descended into hell, do you know what that means? In that moment, when he was taking the brutal punishment for your sin and my sin, he knew that doing the right thing was going to cost him his life. Just like Esther knew, to stand before the king may cost her her life, but they were willing to take the risk. Jesus prayed in the garden before he was arrested and led away to be crucified. Lord, if there's any other way that this cup of judgment, this cup of difficulty, this execution could pass for me, let it pass, but not my will, your will be done. He said, listen, if there's any other way, make it so. But if there's not any other way, I'm still willing to go through this. He gave up everything for you, for me, everybody prior to me and you. And who will come after us? And he's not going to hold a gun to your head and say, believe in me. He will do like Thomas. Come here. Touch, see, believe. See, I went there for you. And yeah, you're going to go through difficult times too, but you'll never go through what I went through for you. So what do you have to lose? What do you have to lose? If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and the sake of the good news, you'll save it. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? There's a story of an interview with one of the soldiers of the Army of the Potomac in the Civil War that uh, took part in the Battle of Gettysburg. He belonged to the Sixth Corps and uh, the corps that made the famous march from Manchester to Gettysburg, a distance of about 34 miles. He said uh, that march with clouds of dust, the perspiration, the blood of chafed limbs trickling down into his shoes was the hardest experience of his whole long war service. It's sometimes harder to march than it is to fight. The test of endurance is this long march. 
You, you have set out on this long march. You will meet many others who have gone part of the way and have turned back. You, you, you will have by your side many others who are ready to quit and go back with you if you decide to go back too. But always there are some who are going steadily forward who have no idea of anything but enduring until the end. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, Jesus says, He who endures to the end will be saved. Esther was fearful, but she didn't allow the fear to paralyze her. Esther was willing to do the right thing, no matter the cost. She understood that God could accomplish his purposes with or without her, but she was willing to be an active participant in his plans. I'm going to go ahead and call our worship team forward as they get set to close us out this morning. And I want to ask you a couple questions as they're preparing to lead us out. Are you willing to take a risk for God? Not for you, not for anybody. Are you willing to take a risk for God? Are you willing to be an active participant in his plans and in his purposes? Do you, do you give up when the going gets tough? Or when the odds seem stacked against you? Or are you willing to pursue what's right in spite of the consequences? See, doing the right things is difficult at times and often comes with a price, but it's always worth it in the end. Never giving up for the right reasons pays great eternal dividends. Loving God and loving others requires sacrifice and endurance. And remember this, love never gives up, even when it means honoring God more than honoring the king. Let's pray. Father, I love you. You are good. When there's nothing good in me, you are willing to sacrifice everything for me so that I might have an opportunity to step into your good graces. And Father, I don't always do that well. <clears throat> I fail you often with my petty grievances, my insecurities. I fail you oftentimes with the difficulties that I face that force me into a corner and that make me want to give up when the going gets tough. But God, I pray that you'd give me the strength to withstand and endure as I step into your good purpose for my own life. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website at www.northmaincog.org where you can learn more about us. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe to our podcast. And if you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that'd be helpful too. If you'd like to donate to the ongoing ministry of North Main, go to www.northmaincog.org and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Again, thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.